done. So is framing Stephen Avery not a motive to murder somebody? I don't think it's a motive to kill. It's, it's, it's a way to shift attention away from yourself if you did it. If you're somebody who obviously yeah, you're out. Who are the police who did this? Who are the police going to want to believe did this? That's a reason to frame them, but not not well killed. In theory, I mean, there's some red red pads where they suggested that maybe the person that killed her did it deliberately to frame. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem with that is, uh, I mean, it's an interesting theory, but in, in terms of being able to introduce that in court, you'd have to show. I mean, that's. That would be pure speculation. You, you would have to show that the person had at least access and opportunity as well as a motive and under the, the judge's ruling. And there were there were people that are not even in the list that frankly had motive, potential motive. But because the investigation didn't show where they were that night or that day, we couldn't prove that they had a you know, real access or opportunity. So if the, you know, a business partner with a million dollar policy has all the reason in the world to kill his partner, but he's in Barbados at the time, and even motive is enough. You've got to show some connection, potential. Now, one case where just across town was close enough, but. Um, and we had people closer than that. Yeah, we had them in, in real yeah. proximity. But, you know, then again, the, the sort of absence of police investigation, which we couldn't replicate four months, six months later. Um, at that time, it was pretty unclear where some of the other people even may have been. Um, so, here in the field, we had additional. Do you think it's just bad police work or a frame job? Because it's very difficult to manufacture that type of evidence, especially with a small Example of 
you know, this was, this guy's a bad egg, something bad has happened, let's, let's get him. Uh, I understand from like a legal point of view, not uh, having lie detectors in play. But what about just from a public perception and kind of public uh, court of opinion, if you will? Did anyone uh, volunteer to do that? I mean, there are so many people that could have lent credence to one side or the other. If I was in the case, I'd say, give me, a, give me a lie detector. You mean, are you talking about like, uh, Bobby and Scott, polygraphs, that kind of thing? Yeah, just, I mean, there's so many stories and everything was intertwined and if you got, started getting like five lie detectors kind of lining up, at some point, my, my there view were no, is... There were no requests by the police, so anybody can take lie And from, you guys want to kind of encourage that just to get kind of you support? Can't require anybody to do lie But even like family members to kind of rule them out and just get kind of neighborhood support of saying, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. First of all, it doesn't rule them out. They use they use polygraphs more often to lie and say, you know, will you take a polygraph? Yes, and then they, they have to take one, and, and in some cases, and then they'll come back and say you're lying. The machine says you're lying. Well, it's, they never intended to use the machine to do anything other than use it as a tool to mislead. Hmm. That's really all they ever do with polygraphs. Um, when I was watching the show. I had a little bit of anxiety in trying to understand how you were going to craft a strategy to this lack of investigation, lack of all of the court prosecution in general. Because, you know, one of the foundations you have to is you got a bloody knife, you've got this motive, you've got all these other points that you know the prosecution is going to have. And you can kind of like figure out the defense. Almost as if you were fighting a ghost. And if you could kind of explain your strategy and how to deal with that lack of investigation, lack of police work, and how you kind of formulate your strategy. Sure. I mean, it, well, it started with the whole idea of bringing Nancy false confession that wasn't used. I mean, that whole story, mm -hmm. which came out the day Jerry was in the office talking about getting into the case. Story of the press release. The story we thought we had to knock out. Everybody in the state supported it, and in fact, we butted it. Um, and there was a little bit of shadow boxing quality to that because when we got to the trial, the state didn't offer that. that they didn't, didn't pursue the story that they you know, ascribed to Brenda. So, knocking down something that the jury had heard months earlier that didn't hear the trial. Um, oh, sorry. Is that There was, there was 
you'd get a mix. You'd get a mix. There would always be another person, even if it was not the last person. So, and it was not absolute. You guys, thank you very much. Sorry. <laughs> Good evening and thank you for coming. Today's conversation will be moderated by Rob Woodward. Rob is the senior editor of news at WBEZ, Chicago's public radio station. Before that, he spent 10 years reporting on criminal and legal affairs here in Chicago, covering federal courts, including the trials of several governors. His reporting on prisons led to a major change in the access reporters are given to the Illinois prison system. He's exposed negligent registration practices at the Chicago Police Department, which led sex offenders to be wrongly arrested and imprisoned for failure to register. His reporting has also led to numerous policy changes in the city and state, including a 75% reduction in inmate phone charges at the Cook County Jail. He's also been reporting on the use of force in the Chicago Police Department, something that is finally a concern for city leaders. Please welcome Rob Wilford. have a state and thoughtful discussion on criminal justice reform. 
I, that, that was much more of a response than I expected, actually. Um, and it wasn't a joke about covering several governors' trials. That wasn't supposed to be a funny line. Uh, but we're weird here in Illinois, I guess. Um, I have a huge stack of questions from all of you, so I am just going to get right into this as quickly as we can. I want to, uh, I want to introduce our uh, esteemed guests who we're all super excited to have here tonight. Dean Strang is a lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin. He's His first book, published in 2013, is Worse Than the Devil, Anarchists, Clarence Darrow, and Justice in a Time of Terror. His work includes five years as Wisconsin's first federal defender. He is an adjunct professor at Marquette University Law School, the University of Wisconsin Law School, and a lecturer in legal history at University of Wisconsin's Division of Continuing Studies. Mr. Strang is a member of the American Law Institute and serves on several charity boards, including the Wisconsin Innocence Project. His second book will be published in 2018. And Jerry Buting is a principal in the of Buting, Williams, and Stilling. He received his undergraduate degree in forensic studies from Indiana University and his law degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is, I don't, I didn't get there, I don't know why. Uh, he is a past director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and past president of the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. His first book, published by Harper, will be out in 2017. Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. Southsiders, White Sox fans, Northsiders, uh, and far north, especially welcome the Lake County Public Defender's Office. Uh, thank you all for being here. And you meant to add Go Bears? <laughs> Go Bears? No. No. Okay. Uh, we have enough things to fight about tonight. Let's get right to it. Um, I am curious. Uh, for starters, as a news reporter, I'm interested in, um, since the show, what is the news with Stephen Avery, with Brendan, with the families? What can you tell us? What do you know? Well, the, uh, you know, they're both, I think all of them, including the family, Stephen and Brendan, are, are uh, very hopeful <laughs> given the, the response that they've gotten from uh, the viewers of this documentary. Yeah. <laughs> What's that noise? Now it's stereo. Brendan, that pouring cold water on it. There you go. Brendan's case is actually the appeal is still pending. In fact, it could come be decided any day by a federal judge. Um, and uh, Stephen's case is is. Appeals are essentially done, at least the first round of them. Um, he has 
Kathleen Zellner and other attorneys that she's assembled representing him now looking for newly discovered evidence or other types of um, vehicles to try and get him back into court. But his, his at this point, uh, appeals have terminated and it's a matter of getting it back into court for him. And the family, do you guys stay in touch with them? What's the latest you've heard from any of them? Well, we, we have been in touch with them on and off. Uh, I don't know if there's anything specifically new with the family right now. They're still, I know, working on sort of handling the flow of, you know, in, interest from people and um, interest in contributing money, interest in contributing ideas. Um, and they're, they're working with, um, uh, actually both uh, Brennan and, and uh, Stephen, as many of you know, are represented by Chicago or Ch Chicago land lawyers at this point. Kathleen Zomer uh, and her firm on behalf of um, Stephen in the Chicago land area, and then um, Brennan and his wonderful lawyers, uh, just first rate lawyers at Northwestern University's Center for Lawful Convictions of Youth. Um, which, which is a fabulous outfit um, here, and we'll talk more about uh, that as one of the really good things going on locally here. So I know both of them are in contact as well with um, the Avery and Dassey families. Um, what, why did, one of the questions we got in here in this big stack that I can't find quite right yet, but I, but I saw earlier was, was why did you guys decide to agree to be filmed to participate in this and who got paid who got who got paid by Netflix? That was one of the questions. <laughs> Nobody got paid by Netflix. Uh, well I hope the filmmakers other than the filmmakers. Uh, Dean and I got nothing, the Avery's got nothing, Brendan got nothing. That wasn't part of any kind of quid pro quo for uh, I think somebody asked was there any kind of deal that Brendan or that Stephen had worked out to waive attorney-client privilege in return for getting money from Netflix, and that was never. In fact, Netflix wasn't even in the, on the horizon when the, when the filming began, nor were we. Right. Um, by the time Dean and I got on the case, which was about three and a half months for you, four months for me, the filmmakers had already been in Manitowoc working on the case for about three months, and they'd already gotten the cooperation with the family and Stephen. Um, and when we got on the case, we weren't so sure that we were going to agree to this, really. There was no uh, requirement that if we represented them, we had to agree to this, uh, cooperate with the filming. Um, but when we talked it over and, and worked out some compromises, one of which was that nothing would air until after both trials were done. And that there would be no attempt at violating attorney-client privilege. Um, those are the two main things we were most concerned about. And you know, they kept their word that nothing aired. And uh, uh, Laura, one of the filmmakers, was a lawyer herself, so she was sensitive to the ideas of the concerns about attorney-client privilege. And so there were there are, if you notice, there there's no moments in the, in the documentary when we are talking to, to Brendan, attorney to client. To Steve. I'm sorry, to Steve. Right, there's no, the, he never did waive his attorney-client privilege. Um, so there's no interchange between 
lawyer and client um, in the film, he did agree that we could disclose what would otherwise be confidential information under the rules of professional conduct governing lawyers. So we, you know, he wanted us to participate in the film. We couldn't have participated without some latitude to discuss the police reports we've been given or, you know, information related to the case, but privileged information, things he said to us in confidence and we to him in confidence. Nobody asked for a waiver and that was never offered. Stephen's voice obviously appears a lot in the film, but that's uh, his jail calls um, with his girlfriend at the time, with his family members, which the filmmakers I think were able to obtain by open records requests of the sheriff's department. We got a question here from Chloe from London, England. That's where London is. Uh, what is the most convincing well, evidence? Ontario. It's not London, Ontario. Okay. What, what is the most convincing evidence that Stephen is innocent? And what is the most convincing evidence that Stephen is guilty? Well, you know, I think to, to us, one of the most convincing things really was the uh, the fact of the bones. Um, and if, the evidence of the bones and that there were more than one location where Teresa Halbach's remains were found. And in fact, that's one thing that we wish, you know, perhaps the, the filmmakers might have included a little bit more about the defense case and our arguments on that. But, you know, I can understand that they had to make their own decisions on editorial content. But from our way of thinking, it, it was very important it was clear, it was undisputed by the state that Teresa Halbach's identified remains were found in at least two locations. The primary uh, collection of them were in the burn pit behind Stephen Avery's house, but there was also a significant amount of them in a burn barrel behind the Bobby Dassey house. And they were in fact, the, those uh, remains in the burn barrel were from all over the body. It wasn't like just an appendage had been severed and burned in there. It was, you know, it was clearly that they were mixed up from all different parts of the body. And to us, that meant that somebody had moved her bones, clearly. The question is, did they, were they moved to Stephen Avery's burn pit or was somebody moving them away from there? If Stephen Avery was trying to get rid of them from his own burn pit, why would he only put a few of them in the, the burn barrel that was behind Bobby Dassey's house. On the other hand, if the body was burned somewhere else, then it's no question that Stephen Avery was innocent. Because nobody would burn a body somewhere else and then dump the bones in your own backyard. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the most obvious, rational argument that we thought we had on that. And then right, and, and, and you don't see much of them in the, in the film, as Jerry mentioned, Know, the filmmakers didn't include much of this, but the forensic anthropologist we call a guy, a Dr. Scott Fairgrave, um, and this you don't see in the film, but he testified really quite convincingly that the level of cremation here couldn't have happened in an open, shallow burn pit with uneven fuel sources. That is, you know, just a you know, essentially a bonfire where you throw a log on or throw whatever on to keep the fire burning. His opinion was that 
the, the very high heat and sustained high heat necessary to render the bones for that condition almost certainly would have had to have been um, created in an enclosed space with pretty constant fuel sources. And not the barrel. A barrel would have been a closed space. You could have generated that sort of high heat. Constant fuel sources in the barrel, I don't know how you would have, would have done that. Um, but the barrel would have been closed enough to sort of generate the, the great heat and sustain it necessary to render the cremains as they were. Um, and so there again, you know, it, it supported, I think, a really pretty strong inference that the body was not burned in the burn pit, but, but later most of it was, was dumped in the burn pit. And there, Jerry's right. I mean, you know, I, 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 let's concede um, the obvious that many people who commit crimes are not uh, destined to become road scholars or masterminds, but nobody, nobody, you know, would successfully burn a body somewhere else and then bring it back and say, I know, how about feet out my bedroom window last night? Why don't I put it there? Um, and so, you know, so that, and, and for me, you know, in terms of, you know, I'll just real quickly, I mean, the strongest evidence of guilt, um, you know, I, I, I personally thought the strongest evidence of guilt, at least on its face, was his blood in the car. Now, you know, there was room for dispute on how that blood got there and whether it dripped or whether it looked smeared or, you know, all that. But his blood was in the car. Um, that wasn't a good fact. Um, and, but, you know, beyond that, in terms of why you're persuaded of innocence or, or, or guilt, um, to me, the, just to me as a criminal defense lawyer, the, the sort of strongest indication of in innocence wasn't really technically evidence at all. Um, it was this. From early November 2005 when he was arrested, and indeed for several days before that when the media were interviewing him and he was talking to the media uh, and the police, um, so early November 2005, police interviews, media interviews, and then an arrest. Through June of 2007, when Stephen was sentenced, at least while he was in custody, every word that man said to his family or to his girlfriend was recorded <laughs> by, the, by the jail. And the police listened to those recordings assiduously. I think daily listen to those recordings. And we got all of these recordings, hundreds of hours of you know, recorded jail conversations of our client um, on CD-ROM. And in all of that time, including talking to family while he's isolated, and the police, you know, the Sheriff's Department did isolate him. He's, Stephen's a very social guy. They put him in a cell block alone for most of the time. Not only no cellmate, but nobody in the block with him for large stretches of time. So the only outlet he has is to get on the phone and talk to a girlfriend or family. And in that 18 months, roughly, not one word 
suggesting guilt. Not one coded confession, not one anything, you know, that betrayed a sense of guilt. Um, and just as an experienced criminal defense lawyer, that doesn't happen uh, with my clients who did something. They, they just can't help themselves in saying something incriminated. And so it's not evidence, maybe it's not persuasive to other people, but for me, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer of now 28 years or something, that's what still, still um, makes me really doubt uh, that he had anything to do with his murder. We've got a question here from Chloe from the UK. Which seems strange. Chloe from London? Yeah, a different pen colors. We're checking this out. Uh, her question is, is, what was not included in the show that you think should have been? You mentioned one. And I have to say, like, I feel like as a person who's in the media and who crafts stories, like I know, like the whole thing about creating a story is I collect eight hours of tape and I do a four-minute story. So it's all about chopping and cutting and leaving out things. And when I was watching it, I really had questions of, am I really seeing the prosecutor's best case here? It seemed like every time Kratz opened his mouth, he was setting you up to like knock him down. Um, and I wondered, like, was there a stronger case that they made that we no. didn't see? Nope. No, it wasn't. <laughs> all right, thank you, Chloe. There was 140 plus hours of evidence. You know, there were 19 full days of testimony, just testimony in this case. So, you know, 140 some hours of evidence. Um, this movie gave a really lavish three, three plus hours to actual footage of the Stephen Avery tribe. Um, so obviously a lot get, got left out, but Chloe's question, is there anything that should have been included? No. And, and, and I mean, the reason I jump to that is it's not our movie. And it's not Ken Kratz's movie. It's nobody's movie other than the two filmmakers who invested nine years of their lives on the come, hoping that they'd be able to sell this documentary. I mean, this was a project of passion for these two women. They went into hock for this. They lived, they couch surfed for nine years. So did they um, do that before Netflix was even invented? Absolutely. Well, I don't know, not invented, but I mean... When was Netflix invented? But they, Netflix was DVD, mail-in only. They, um, <laughs> you know, they, they... Also were, an expert in media. <laughs> they, were, they were film students um, who really scraped to get by for nine years making this movie, and they're entitled to their point of view and their editorial decisions. So you feel like the prosecutor's strongest case, like the best version of that that you could present as a lawyer we saw in yes. the video? Yeah, yeah, I don't feel that way. Jerry and I had front row seats through the, all of it, and you know the things that the prosecution was emphasizing strongly at the time, and for that matter, the things that Jerry and I were emphasizing strongly at the time, made it in some fashion into the movie. Uh, now, do I wish there had been more of Dr. Fairgrave? You know, ultimately that resulted in an acquittal on the destroying the body count. Sure, but it wasn't my movie. And it's really not the, our place, 
I think, to criticize fair editorial decisions because the, the things we were talking about as being most important at the time on both sides are there in the film. One, um, one of the things, though, is, uh, you know, I, I've thought, why is this documentary so popular? Why did it become so, so gripping? And, you know, I can't pretend that, to answer all of that. I mean, there's everything from the interest in true crime genre now. And things no, of that it's nature. you. But what is clear is that, that there are a lot of enduring mysteries and questions about this Teresa Halbach case. And they were not answered by the state at trial. They're not answering the documentary because they were not answered at trial. They didn't even attempt to answer some of them at trial, um, either trial. And then they used inconsistent theories of prosecution from one trial to the next, from Stevens' trial to Brennan's trial. Uh, so you heard the witnesses say what they said without being filtered through Ken Kratz or any other prosecutor uh, version of it. And you saw how they looked when they saw it. I mean, that was one of the unique things about this kind of seeing this much footage of a real trial is that, you know, yeah, they could they could do some editing, but they didn't put words in those people's mouths. They said what they said. And the facts are what they are. The conflicts of interest and all of those things, the, the lack of motive. In fact, one, one other thing I meant to mention is he was, a, Stephen Avery was about to receive a $400,000 check tax-free that week from the governor. And, you know, this is a, for a guy who'd never seen that kind of money in his entire life. Um, all of his years had ever worked. So, you know, there was never a good motive that made any sense that they could offer. They didn't offer it at trial, and it's not in the documentary because it's not there. It wasn't. Rob, may I pick up on, on that? Well, I'm moderating here, so if you don't mind. <laughs> I'm always stepping out of line, so keeping me in line. But, you know, um, I, I think one of the real lasting contributions that, that this film can make, um, you know, the, the story of Stephen Avery is compelling, the story of Brendan Dassey at least is compelling, but in terms of an overall impact, um, this film puts before viewers a number of things, you know, problems or conundrums of our criminal justice system that are much broader and, and that ought to worry you not so much about what happened in Manitowoc, Wisconsin nine years ago, but what may be happening in Cook County or in Nebraska or California or anywhere else in this country tomorrow. And one of those Jerry just touched on. Um, you had two guys, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, tried successively, sequentially, for the same murder of the same young woman. And they were tried on very different theories, fundamentally different theories of what happened, of how that murder was committed, where, and what was entailed, what were the, you know, sort of related crimes that led to the crime of this woman. And, you know, um, 
in Stephen Avery's case, no argument that there was a rape, no argument about abduction, uh, you know, binding her to the bed, false imprisonment in that sense, nothing about stabbing and throat slashing and all the horrific stuff that we heard from the prosecutor in a press conference 10 months before the Avery trial began. None of that. And the prosecution in our case was agnostic about where she was killed or how. And then three, four weeks after our trial ends, Brendan Dassey is tried for the same murder on a very different theory that goes back to this halting statement that the police suggest and elicit from Brendan Dassey. And those kinds of inconsistent prosecution theories, by and large, are tolerated by American courts. And we might ask ourselves, why? You know, let's accept that a, a trial won't always get you to the truth. You don't always in, and have confidence that you found the truth in a trial. Fine. Still, the, the underlying justification for having trials is that we're in search of the truth not just in search of a conviction, but we're in search of the truth. When you present as the state irreconcilable or inconsistent theories of how the same crime happened to two different juries, necessarily at least one of those trials isn't a search for the truth. Because if one theory is true, the other one isn't. And that ought to worry you. Uh, it seems to me, if you're concerned at all about the reliability of the outcomes in the most punitive country on the face of the earth. Um, and I think this, that movie raises that issue and a number of others in a way that's easy for people to grab onto and to think about. Question from Jesse from here in Chicago. Is there anything you think you could have done differently as the lawyers that could have changed the outcomes of the You know, we're asked this question a lot, and we've thought about it a lot, believe me, because anytime you lose, you second guess yourself. Um, you know, you, you wonder, well, what if we had changed venue, or maybe if we had uh, looked, you know, moved for the mistrial at the end. Um, when the jury was struck, uh, you know, you can you can beat yourself up about it, and we do, and we have. Uh, but ultimately, you just don't know. It's speculation whether it would have made a difference. We we the decisions we made uh, at the time, certainly the decision on the change of venue, I'm convinced wouldn't have made a difference. The, the, jury pool in the entire state of Wisconsin was so polluted by the Kratz press conferences, the false narrative that was presented out there and repeated 10 months over and over and over, that we really didn't feel like we could get a fair jury any place in the state of Wisconsin, any more than in Manitowoc. And at least in Manitowoc, the, the citizens there would have been more familiar perhaps with the mistreatment. Stephen Avery and his wrongful conviction, and you know the media, local media covered that a little bit more. So, uh, you know, those are tough calls. Um, 
people last night in Minneapolis asked us about the, the mistrial. You know, why not just take the mistrial when that jury, juror had to leave? And the problem there sometimes is cases don't always get better the second time around uh, for either side, but oftentimes for the defense, uh, you know, the prosecutors have gotten sort of a dress rehearsal of your cross-examination of their witnesses. They're better prepared for it the next time around. And we saw that, and I saw that myself in this case when we did a full day hearing cross-examining the FBI agent, Mark LeBeau, to try and keep that, that chemical EDTA test out of trial altogether, not being liable. And we spent all day with him, and then the next day we, the judge allowed it, of course, I wasn't terribly surprised, but the next day we had to repeat it, same kind of cross-examination with the jury present. And, you know, there were some areas where he was a little better the second time around. And that's a risk you take if you do a mistrial. That we knew one thing for sure, they were going to retry this Stephen Avery. There was no question this case was just going to go away. And you felt you had done a good job making the points you wanted to make, it seemed. We did. We thought things had gone in as well as... I still to this day am convinced there was an abundance of reasonable doubt in this case. And Unfortunately, I mean, I, I said something in there at one point that we, all of this last month could have been for naught if we ended up with a jury that just was, you know, biased to begin with, not able to set that aside and really fairly look at the evidence. And, and sometimes you just, you're stuck with that. Um, but I still think the end of the story hasn't been written here. You know, here's the problem with, with losing a case, especially one where the consequences are really horrible for a client, and, you know, essentially life-ending for a client. Um, I I'm acutely aware that I'm not the best lawyer in the country. I'm not the best lawyer in Wisconsin. I'm often not the best lawyer in the room, you know, unless I'm the last one there packing my papers. <laughs> the other lawyers have left. And, uh, you know, so when you're aware of that and you lose, and the consequences are devastating to a client, there isn't any way around both second-guessing yourself and engaging in self-justification. You know, we've got an ego or a sense of self to try to preserve. That's why I'm really relieved that Stephen has new lawyers who can look at this afresh, including what did I do, what did Jerry do, what did we do together, as well as everything else in the case. Um, but, you know, Stephen Avery got a sense of life without the possibility of parole. Functionally, what you can think of as a, as a social death sentence. He'll, as things stand, he'll never have a hope of rejoining the community. He's been ousted from the community and from any hope of rehabilitation forever, as things stand, sort of awaiting the moment of biological death. Um, and that, that's hard, but at least for myself, when I was in my 20s and took my first death penalty case, when the client was already on death row, um, one of the things I decided is that I'd better stay in Wisconsin or one of the other states that don't have the death penalty because I don't know that I have it in me to, to take a case at the outset and say, look, if I'm the second best lawyer here, they're going to kill my client. I don't know that I, that I have it in me uh, to stay in this profession if that's the price of being the second best lawyer in the room. 
Um, and so, you know, as bad as life without parole is, and it's a horrible punishment, if you think about it, it may be necessary at times, but it's a horrible punishment. As bad as that is, if there is eventually new evidence, or if somebody can, you know, point out something Jerry and I did wrong that was really, uh, had a real impact on the outcome, then at least something can be salvaged of this man's life. Well, you didn't let the police interview your client without you being there, so that was a big... Um, what, uh, you know, Dean, you mentioned kind of the revolving theory from the police. And for me, like as a viewer who's not a lawyer, it's like once that happened, it's like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Like you guys thought like it was in the bedroom and there was this big scene that played out and then there's like not a drop of blood. It seems like that was, to me, that was really damning, like just undercut their entire case. But then, were you guys able to bring that out at trial? That's, that's what I thought. Like, I wondered, like, well, geez, like, get Brendan on the stand. Once the jurors see that guy, surely they'll see through it. I mean, of course, they didn't in, this, in his trial, but... Well, a, a, defendant, a defendant can't call another defendant to the stand. Brendan would have had a Fifth Amendment right not to testify. Um, and the state was hoping that they could flip him and make him a state's witness so that he would voluntarily testify against his uncle. Um, but uh, if they had made the deal better, you know, good enough, perhaps his lawyer might have persuaded him to do that, to save his own neck. You see that all too often in the court, criminal courts where, where people turn state's evidence because the, they've, they've been given a deal they can't refuse. Um, Frankly, in some ways, it would have. We thought our case might have been better if that had been the case, because Brendan's statements were so impossible, uh, in, irreconcilable with the with the physical evidence that we knew all that would do is, if anything, reemphasize our theory that these law enforcement agents are willing to stop at nothing to get uh, to get Stephen Avery even to the point of coercing a 16-year-old kid with mental limitations into saying things that, that aren't true. And in fact, that they knew couldn't have been true because they'd already searched that bedroom. They knew there was no blood anywhere. They, were, they knew that there was no DNA anywhere. And yet they're, they're trying to get him to say that, that somebody shot her in the head. That was the one little, if you remember from the documentary, the one secret bit of information that the public didn't know. They were trying to get him to say, and he couldn't say it because he wasn't there. It didn't happen. Cut her hair. Right? Yeah, and so he's guessing. He cut her hair. Uh, what else? What else? What else happened? Her, you know, her throat. And all this other stuff is happening that is, you got to imagine is, they're thinking, oh my God, this is really hurting us more than helping us because we know the evidence isn't there to support it. So, uh, but, yeah. go ahead. Well, and, you know, and then the, one of the just sort of crazy real-world aspects of this case is because the prosecutor very skillfully cobbled together that halting 
statement of Brendan Dassey into a coherent, horrific narrative that he put out as a rhetorical triumph, really, in the March 2, 2006 press conference. You know, turned that statement into a really unforgettable narrative of this poor woman's last moments on earth. And that was broadcast everywhere in Wisconsin, all seven major media markets, and then echoed and repeated over and again for the 10 months before our trial started. The crazy real world insanity of this trial was that although the prosecution offered none of that statement at our trial, we had to spend a good bit of the trial disproving a statement that we knew the jurors all had heard repeatedly. Um, so we, you know, we proved there, there was no blood in the bedroom, on the bed, on the walls, anywhere. No DNA of Teresa Halbach, no scrape marks from handcuffs on the crossbar of the bedposts, you know, no hair cut off and scattered on the floor. Um, but they knew all that before they held their press conference. They knew there was no I understand, but, but, the, but the press conference was what it was. And, and once you heard Do you think they that narrative, you, you couldn't unhear that. You couldn't. And then it was repeated and echoed over and again in the newspapers and the TV stations for the next 10 months before our trial started. And Kratz we, knew when he made had that press conference that there was no blood in the bed. That, yes. that if someone's throat had been slit there, there'd be blood everywhere. And there. He knew there was none of that evidence. Yes. So why so you think, how cynical are we here? Why do you think he held such a press conference? Well, you know, it's pretty obvious from the, you know, what his motivations, at least from, from my viewpoint, it's pretty obvious. Um, but, you know, when we got on the case, of course, I was actually sitting in Dean's office talking about, you know, making the final decision to, to join the defense when we got the phone call from um, somebody in Brendan's family saying that he's, he's been arrested. They say he's confessed and he's implicating Stephen. And, you know, that was our first uh, first time dealing with that, that narrative and then hearing it the next day. We had not had access to the discovery yet, the police reports. It was still several weeks before we actually got the crime lab reports, uh, the photographs showing there was no blood and that they had already done all that even before the press conference. The problem is by the time we, we were actually privy to all that, there was a, a, essentially a gag order preventing us from going and talking to the media and saying, wait a minute, this is all false. So we were not allowed to do that. And, and at the same time, neither, the, the, you know, in fairness to the judge, he also said that the state was not allowed to make any more statements like that either. But then that left the media with nothing to run in the biggest case in Wisconsin's history, except the Kratz press conference over and over and over. They had to run something to fill in the, you know, their story and make it every single day part of the news. And so that's what they repeated. Uh, not having anything new from either side, they, were, they simply re repeated the false narrative and, and that made it even worse. Um, 
So one of the questions here from Emily and Dean, you kind of touched on this a little bit, is how did you deal with losing the case? Did you keep it up? Did it keep you up at night? Yes, <laughs> it did. Uh, to some extent, it still does, or it is, it, it is again. Um, and um, you know what I what I did specifically. Um, and Jerry did not do, to his everlasting credit, actually, um, is once the Avery case ended with the guilty verdict, I really unplugged for weeks uh, from that entirely. I, a, I went on vacation not too long after that trial ended. Uh, B, then I just sort of turned back to other cases. Um, I didn't watch a minute of the Dassey trial, which was live-streamed at a time when that was unusual, um, as the Avery trial had been. Uh, Jerry, as I say, to his great credit, watched almost all of the Dassey trial. And he were emailing me about it, and I just, I, I was done. I couldn't watch, um, I couldn't watch the Dassey trial. Um, and, you know, and then I got back to focusing on sentencing because there was still something to be done at sentencing. We were, you know, hoping that the judge would allow parole eligibility at some point for Stevens. So there was real work to be done on sentencing. One of the things that did, uh, by watching the trial and then once there was a, the, the Brendan trial, um, once the jury convicted him and then Kratz gave another press conference saying, um, directly blaming uh, Stephen Avery for talking Brendan into this and it was Stephen's fault and directly linking them again. What I thought that did was it, it opened the door at sentencing for us to now take apart Brendan's so-called confession for the judge. Because he hadn't, our judge hadn't heard of it all of it. He'd seen it, uh, you know, segments of it, but we had hired an expert who could who really picked it apart. We were ready to go if it, if Brendan had testified, play it line by line, freeze frame, explaining to the jury why this interrogation technique was coercive. We had all of Brendan's um, school records and mental health records and things of like that showing showing his vulnerabilities, and we were prepared to, to present all that just as if we were defending Brendan at his own trial. And, but we weren't able to use any of it at our trial. But at the sentencing, we did. And so we, we, we uh, I think we filed something about you know, two or three inches thick just upon his confession, line by line going through, pointing out how all of this stuff is unreliable. And ultimately... We have retained a, a psychologist yes. at Hawaii College who went through all that and offered... Right, and, and he filed a report with the court for sentencing and... We really, I think, totally disproved um, Brendan's confession that they were trying to use against him and against us. Um, and ultimately, I think the judge in his sentencing was concerned enough about it that he made some kind of statement that I am making my decision on what the sentence should be for Stephen Avery without regard at all to the statements, the so-called confessions of Brendan Dassey. And uh, it really distanced himself and, and, and in essence said that if, 
implied that it wasn't credible even to the judge. And they got, the state then got concerned and tried to get him to back away from that, but he didn't. And uh, it didn't ultimately help, but I think my watching the trial and staying engaged as long as I did, which frankly, I don't think I had any choice. I couldn't really disengage from this case for months. Um, I just kept, there's so many mysteries and so many things that didn't make sense. And, you know, we just kept, I kept rolling it over and picking it apart that uh, that was the kind of way I dealt with it. I couldn't do it, Dean, I wish I could have. Um, but yeah, that's just the way I, I dealt with it differently. In many ways, this case is obviously an aberration. It's very unusual to have a guy who was in prison for 18 years, exonerated, and then rearrested. Um, it seems that the uh, actions of the sheriff's department here were unusual. I think Steve Drizzen said, you know, some of this was he'd never seen anything like this before. Um, especially, I think he was referring to Len Kaczynski. Is that his name? Yeah. And 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 his his investigator. We can talk about that in a bit. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> So this case is an aberration in many ways. In what ways is this case, do you think, uh, a, a representation of a lot of cases that go through the criminal justice system? Or is this just a completely crazy case from A to Z? No, and here again, there's a good contrast to be made. You're right that Stephen Avery's case is atypical to the point of being really essentially unique. Um, you know, I think he's the only exoneree still who's been charged later after being freed with a crime this serious. Um, so, you know, just his, his personal history makes his case very unusual, and you obviously only very rarely have a, have a case where the prime suspect in a new case just happens to be suing that sheriff's department for $36 million for you know, a prior wrongful conviction. Um, but the contrast is as unusual as Stephen Avery's case really is, Brendan Dassey's case is utterly usual. It's utterly commonplace um, in the sense that every day all across this country, probably dozens of times, some 16 or 17 year old either in school or somewhere else comes into the hands of the police often is learning disabled or has some developmental delays or just a poor fund of general knowledge as a lot of 17 year olds do and very little life experience and ends up in a custodial interrogation that looks a lot like the one you see in this film, uh, where well-trained police officers are using a number of psychologically manipulative ploys over an extended interrogation or interview, um, and, and simply refusing to accept a denial uh, from the person being interviewed, often a young person. I mean, most people in the criminal justice system are under 25. Most people charged with a crime, just empirically, that's who we're dealing with. Um, but if someone committed a crime, they're not going to come out and tell you right away, right? Don't they sometimes do, do actually. They sometimes do, and they sometimes don't. Um, but the, the, 
the technique of interviewing that you see used here, it's called the Reed technique. Um, it's, it's been universally employed by U.S. police departments really since about the mid-1950s. It's rooted in 1940s behavioral psychology um, or assumptions about behavioral psychology. And to be sure, that technique, which relies on psychologically manipulative techniques, but not physical coercion, to be sure, in the late 40s, early 50s, that was a considerable stride forward from the physical coercion and beating and being held incommunicado for a week or 10 days or two weeks that was common in the first two or three decades of the 20th century and before that with the police, the so-called third degree tactics of just really brutal physical coercion to induce a confession. So the, the Reed technique in today, you know, really did represent a pretty substantial move forward from the truncheon or the sap or, you know, just physical deprivation. Um, but the, the, the problem is it's not the early 1950s anymore. And behavioral psychologists, the mind sciences, have advanced a great deal since the 1940s. And um, some of the techniques that you see being used there, used every day, as I say, across the country, um, really present unacceptable risks of eliciting a false confession. Um, we can talk more about that, but the fact of the matter is the rest of the English-speaking world is moving rapidly away from the read technique um, to videotaping beginning to end, wall-to-wall -wall videotaping of custodial interviews, and to a much more journalistic style of questioning where you know, there aren't accusations, there aren't deceptive techniques used, there aren't lies about the evidence that the police have used, but rather just a, you know, sort of consistent journalistic questioning of the person in custody. Um, much more reliable outcomes. Um, and we ought to be troubled, I think, by the reality today as we're developing a pretty good-sized database of exonerations, and the University of Michigan is tracking these exonerations. Then in the DNA exonerations over the last 20 years or 24 years, whatever it is, about one-sixth of those trials, of people later exonerated by DNA, about one-sixth of those trials involved a confession by somebody, it turns out, didn't commit the crime. Um, and that, you know, that really, again, is one of these things. The film, I think, does a good job of raising the thoughtful viewers and uh, I hope will advance uh, us toward more reliable law enforcement investigations. Yeah, and and one, one of the things that I think is that we've heard the most, uh, even before this documentary came out, is, is parents that come into our office and say, you know, they took my kid out of class, brought him down to the vice principal's office, then took him into custody. No one called me, and I get a call later that he's in the police department, he's under arrest, and he's confessed to something. That can't be legal. Tell me that's not legal. And unfortunately, it is legal, and it has been allowed for way too long in this country. 
but there's a lot of pushback now. And there are, in, in Illinois is an example, there's, there's an effort right now, there's a bill in your legislature that would prevent that kind of interrogation in, in this state, I think the bill is anybody 15 or under. Um, there's other bills in uh, Minnesota and Tennessee and some other states where they're actually trying to prevent uh, any interrogation of a juvenile without an attorney present or and in fact not even because oftentimes they come from dysfunctional families and the, the parents maybe aren't available or, or aren't um, just aren't enough involved so uh, when studies have shown that the rest of the English-speaking world doesn't require these kinds of techniques, particularly against juveniles. There's no reason why America should be allowing them. It's not something that's, there's no constitutional right for the police to do this. They have no rights. Police have no rights under the Constitution. We have the rights. We simply need to pass laws that say, we're not going to allow these kinds of confessions to be admissible in our trials. And if they're not allowed in trial, then it's going to stop because there'll be no more incentive for the police to engage in that kind of behavior. Um, this is not... <laughs> this one is not signed. It says, hey, Dean, I think you're great. One episode, you had a horrid outfit on. Check your tie and jacket, striped shirt, really? Um, so, what happens Ouch. All of us. They said I could throw hard questions at them, so. Uh, this is another one. It is not from me. Will you marry me, Dean? So, fans Someone liked the checked jacket very much. Uh, and then, uh, okay, so here's a, here's a question to get into kind of the weeds of the, of the case. Were Teresa's brother or ex-boyfriend ever considered suspects? That's from Sharon. Not by the police. It's um, about as far as I'll go with that one, I think. But it's certainly not by law enforcement. Um, you know, viewers have certainly raised questions about that, and we've seen a lot of people asking us questions about that. Um, you know, we were, there are other suspects that people have written us about as well. One of the things that's really missing from this documentary is an exploration of other suspects, and it's because the judge ruled before trial that we were not going to be allowed to raise a third-party suspect defense. We were not going to be able to present evidence to the jury that if Stephen Avery didn't do it, who else did? Why? Because it's just speculating and not relevant to whether Stephen there, Avery did it? Or there are, it? Well, in part, there's some, there are rules of evidence that, that many states use that that say, based on the theory that you're not supposed to just distract the jury from what the real issue is, who's on trial, playing the game somebody who's not there to defend themselves, and, um, and so there are certain uh, limits on when you can do that. But in this case, the, the judge went much farther than, than any court in Wisconsin had ever done. And uh, by requiring us to not only show that somebody had some other suspect had access and opportunity, could have, could have done this, but to also prove what the motive for another suspect would have been to kill Teresa Hawkbach, even though the state doesn't have to prove motive of the defendant. Uh, 
They have the entire burden of proof in a criminal case. The defense doesn't have to do anything. And yet the judge is saying, we still, for us to even raise that issue with the jury, we would have to prove that that person had a motive. That was terribly unfair, terribly uh, uh, damaging to our defense, I think, and really uh, affected our constitutional right, to, or Stephen Avery's constitutional right to present a defense. But unfortunately, when it was then, uh, the conviction was affirmed on appeal, now that has become the law in all of Wisconsin. And it, it's now one of the most restrictive states in the country for that. Do you no, ever and Rob, I, I, look, I don't think for one minute, not for one moment, that Teresa Halbach's brother had anything to do with killing her. I really don't. I mean, having lived through all this and had some contact with her family, I don't think he had anything to do with it. Yeah, but, but statistically, beyond that, statistically in this country, women who are badly hurt or killed um, have, you know, they have that done to them by the men who are close to them by a man who is close. A husband, an ex-husband, a boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend, you know, a suitor, somebody who wants to be a boyfriend. Just statistically, that's who harms women badly in this country. And, you know, whether you think the police in the end got the right guy on Teresa Halbach's murder, if you, you know, if you, whether you think Steve and Avery killed her or you don't think he killed her, you're just not convinced. The fact of the matter is, inescapably here, that the spotlight of the investigation zeroed on, in on him almost instantly. And he was not one of the men in Teresa Halbach's life. I mean, he met her a couple of times. And so, you know, the, the sort of tunnel vision that you saw here was not ideal policing by any measure, um, regardless of whether in the end, you, know, you think they got the right guy. It, it just it just wasn't the way to begin an investigation into the disappearance and death of a young woman. How much of that was, do you think, was because of the lawsuit he was bringing, and they focused on Stephen Avery, and they had a, had a beef with him? Or how much of that do you think was just prejudice against poor people that we see everywhere. Here's, here's a guy who doesn't have much money, who lives in a trailer, in an auto yard with a, with a bunch of his families. Well, sort of all of the above, and a specific, I think, just attitude toward the Avery family, generally. Stephen is one member of it, a particularly troublesome or nettlesome member of it from the perspective of local law enforcement, but the family in general. The, these folks, and you know, every small community has families like this, who are just sort of the usual suspects or from the wrong side of the tracks, however you want to put it. Um, and the fact that this lawsuit was pending, was going well, um, the, the mere fact, I think, of the sort of shame and public humiliation of having locked up the wrong guy for 18 years with the right guy once he was identified by that DNA testing being in prison 
at the time he was identified for a very violent rape he committed after the rape for which Stephen Avery was wrongly convicted. You know, that, that's a lot for police to carry. Uh, in the same way, losing the tough case is hard for me to carry. These guys got it wrong, and another woman, at least one other woman, was violently raped by a guy because they got the wrong guy. And now that's being played out publicly. So even set aside who's going to pay the millions of dollars in damages, you know, whether that's insurance companies or the county or whomever, setting that aside. These police officers, that department, had a lot of skin in this game, just in terms of public humiliation. Do I think that drove, you know, an early focus, an immediate focus on Stephen Avery? I do think that was part of it. I, I think that's human. And, and a couple of people asked, um, well, I'm, I'm going to move on because I keep coming with a question right now. Um, Zoe asked, this is interesting, do you think the internet communities and their own investigations and discussions are helping or hindering Stephen and Brendan's chance for a case review and a retrial? This is for the internet guy. <laughs> the social media guy. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that it's, it's hindering them at all. I, I think it's helpful. It's, um, you know, there's... there's now that there's so much information that's posted online, that people in Reddit communities or, or anybody who wants to can find transcripts of the trial, all of the exhibits, most of the pleadings, um, not all of the police reports, because a lot of it wasn't ever uh, made public, but uh, it, the whole idea of crowdsourcing, where thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are, are looking at this evidence and digging into it and tearing it apart and uh, you know if, if two minds are better than one then hundreds of thousands are better than two and uh, I've read a lot of them uh, I'm not on reddit myself but people send me links what do you think about this what do you think about that and, um, some of them are very interesting some of them are rather kooky yeah. <laughs> uh, but the majority of them are, are thoughtful um, uh, people who really are taking the time to try and solve these mysteries. Unfortunately, some of them may not ever be solved because of the investigation that they did, um, where they, they didn't go down to certain avenues when they should have. Um, there's not, we, we mentioned the bones earlier, and, and I forgot that there was actually a third site where bones were found that were not specifically identified as hers, but they were a, an adult female, approximately same age and same kind of burning in a quarry some distance away. Um, there was not a single photograph taken by the police of any of those sites before they were disturbed. Not one. You don't see a single picture of these bones at the quarry. You don't see a single picture of them in the burn you know in the burn pit or in the burn barrel until they've been shoveled and therefore critical evidence that might have shown if the, the bones were contiguous to each other that would indicate that's where they were uh, originally burned for instance um, though that evidence is gone and a lot of it is gone because of that um, and 
But I don't think that it's hindering their taste that the people are taking the kind of interest that they're they're taking into it. And hopefully, uh, Kathleen Zeller and her team are getting some tips. We were getting tips just from the viewers of the documentary, even before tearing it all apart. Both factual witnesses coming forward and scientists who looked at these that whole EDTA test and, and uh, how reliable that the FBI's conclusion was that the uh, blood stains in the RAV4 couldn't have come from this blood vial. And yeah, we must have had easily over 100 scientists suggesting other types of tests or, or advances in the science. Um, and we didn't have a chance to, to verify the, whether all that stuff would be admissible and acceptable in course these days, but you know, we sent it all over to his new attorneys. And so I, I think in the, in the end, it's certainly uh, going to be helpful to them, much more than I really can't imagine how it would hinder them. I think uh, Mr. Avery has exhausted all his post-conviction appeals, right? Uh, what would it take for him to get a new trial at this point? Really significant, newly discovered evidence. Um, something that, as people say, is a game changer. Like, what would, what would that? Well, scientific tests, improvements <coughs> that would say, that would show that there really were, uh, really was, for instance, EDTA in those blood stains in the RAV4, and that the reason they weren't detected by the FBI is because they deliberately or otherwise set their limits so high that they weren't going to detect. And, um, you know, we had a defense expert who looked at their, uh, their protocol and, and found that that was very, a very good possibility that that's what happened. And what of the cell phone records? There was the one, I think, co-worker of, of hers who said, oh yeah, she got a call and it was some guy. I mean, did anyone ever run that down? Do we know? I mean, did anyone, did you guys look at that? Did police we, look at that? We did look at that. I don't know about the police, but we, we did look at that. She was getting harassing phone calls, according to her employer. Um, and, um, you know, as I recall this, um, she, she, like a lot of people, was on her cell phone a lot. And there were just, there were lots of repeat Calls. Some of the calls not very long, um, and I, as I recall, all we were able to say is that there was no one from no, no number from the telephone exchange around Stephen Avery's home, you know, around the salvage yard that was repeatedly calling Teresa Halbach. Um, we weren't able to, to narrow down or nail down who the harassing caller might have been simply that it was not from a telephone exchange in that immediate area. Um, one of the most shocking things for me watching the whole series was when the one uh, public defender, Kaczynski, Len Kaczynski, um, lets, the, let, well, his investigator like interrogates Brendan. Uh, then he, I mean, was that, was Kaczynski trying to, do Brendan a solid and be like, we're gonna get you to plead guilty, you're gonna you're gonna uh, testify against your uncle and you're gonna get 20 years instead of life. Was was he making a smart play there or was he just completely? Well, let's back up just a second, just, just to be clear. Um, Mr. Kaczynski was not then, I don't think ever has been a public defender. Right. Wisconsin has a state public defender's office with- Wasn't he appointed to do it? 
he was appointed. He was appointed. Yes, he's, he's a, a, a member. Was and is now a member of the private bar, who takes appointments for indigent defendants, but is not a public defender. In, you know, in the, it's like he's on a contract. So, so it's not a contract, but he's on the list to take appointments because the state public defender's office in Wisconsin and everywhere can't handle every case. One, it's got doesn't have the staff to handle every case, even with the enormous caseloads that staff public defenders carry. And two, you've got conflicts that knock the public defender's office out of representing, you know, in Wisconsin, about 30% of the indigent people charged with a crime can't be represented by the state public defender's office, either because of conflicts or staffing. And that 30% then gets picked up by members of the private bar who are willing to accept assignments to represent the poor. And without you know, addressing any one lawyer by name or in particular, among the states that compensate private lawyers who take indigent cases on an hourly basis, and that's most but not all states use an hourly fee as the metric of compensation. Among those states, Wisconsin, not Arkansas, not Mississippi, not whatever your stereotypes might think, Wisconsin has the lowest rate of assigned counsel compensation in the country. $40 an hour in court and out, $25 an hour for your travel time. That's gone up the munificent sum of five dollars an hour since 1978. And actually, in 1981, when I first moved to Wisconsin, it was forty-five dollars an hour for in-court time. So it's gone down <laughs> in thirty-five years. You know, and and the, the quality of, of attorneys that are willing to take those cases has suffered. And the, the kind of job that they can do is something. Um, now, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of idealistic lawyers who take cases because they want to do pro bono work, you know, uh, low compensation work for the poor. Um, there's also, you know, lawyers who take those cases because they're not getting much else. And, you know, let's, let's be clear, at $40 an hour, that's not the $40 an hour an arc welder or, you know, a skilled machinist might get in the sense of, you know, minus taxes going into your pocket. That $40 an hour has to cover the lawyer's overhead, office rent, malpractice insurance, business insurance, computer-assisted legal research, uh, you know, staff, if the lawyer has staff, all of the usual expenses of running a small business. So, you know, what goes into the lawyer's pocket, even for lawyers who are eking by with minimal overhead, is a fraction of that. Um, just to give you, a, you know, a real-life example, back in 1997, I started a two-lawyer firm with a wonderful lawyer in Milwaukee named Mike Fitzgerald. We had a secretary, so we were lucky. Two lawyers, one assistant, Nice offices, but not lavish offices, up in the, the attic, essentially, of a bank building, okay? Nothing lavish, but we did have office, we did have an assistant. 
And we thought, we were starting off a practice, we're 36 years old, first time we both had been out, you know, on our own. And we thought, should we take court appointments, you know, just because there are going to be some lean weeks and months. Should we take court appointments? And I remember doing this with Mike, sitting down and figuring out, okay, for our little two-lawyer firm with its assistant, how much does it cost us to turn on the lights? You know, before, what's our overhead? Before we pay ourselves anything. <coughs> and in 1997, that brand new modest law firm, based on a 40-hour week, 30-day month, had an hourly overhead of $46. Okay, before we paid ourselves. $46 just to open the door, an hour, okay, to run that law firm. And we both said, we'll be damned if we're going to subsidize at $6 an hour the prosecution of our clients. You know, if we're going to pay the state of Wisconsin in effect six bucks an hour on, you know, to to subsidize the prosecution of our clients. And said, you know, we may take pro bono cases, but we're simply going to take them for free. And that's what we did, um, rather than accept an utterly unacceptable rate of compensation from, you know, legislators who functionally are saying and have been saying, we don't care. We don't care about the level or quality of representation that the poor get when they're dragged into court. Some of the negative uh, feedback that the state of Wisconsin has gotten because of this documentary and the county of Manitowoc has received from this documentary is self-imposed. You know, it's, it's, it's finally the chickens have come home to roost from years of this kind of uh, behavior that the legislature and um, local politicians in, the, in that particular county have allowed. So back to your question though about you know, what happened there in this um, uh, Lynn Kaczynski's investigator allowing and really coercing, I think is what you were starting to get at, Brendan's, uh, I was shocked when I saw that video because I, that was not anything we ever received in discovery. That was a defense video of a defense investigator coercing the defendant to draw the picture bigger so we can see how she's, you know, shackled to the bed. And no, Brendan, is Teresa in there? Is Teresa in that statement? Well, then if she's not in that statement, it's not true. I can't help you if you don't, you know, I can't help you if you don't say what they want you to say. Over and over and over, the, the worse, really, in some respects, than, than what the law enforcement investigators were doing. And then to see a pre-printed form which means that it was used with other defendants that had two choices. I am not, I am sorry for what I did. I am not sorry for what I did. That's it. How about I didn't do it? That's not even an option, you know? So, and that was his defense investigator. And I'm sure, I, you know, I suspect, I, I think, you know, we can be pretty certain that the defense lawyer had concluded that the case 
couldn't be defended successfully and that he was working toward a plea agreement. And there, you know, there's nothing wrong with working toward a plea agreement. But there are appropriate ways to do that that recognize the primacy of the client's interests and what the client is saying about whether he did or didn't do something. Um, and then allowing your 16-year-old client to be interviewed again by law enforcement without you being present when you are representing him is indefensible under any circumstances. So, you guys, I don't know if you want to talk about why you're doing this tour at all, but I mean, you guys have this bully pulpit now. You've got a room full of people. Uh, we seem to be at a special moment in this country where maybe some sort of criminal justice reforms might be possible, although I have lots of reservations about that statement. I mean, what do you want these people to know, or what's like the thing you want them to what, what can people do? What is it you want them to know about the criminal justice system? Uh, from, from, yeah, they're all super interested, obviously, right? And well, super probably pissed off. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons we decided to do this was because we, we noticed that after the the film came out, that the media was sort of lapsing into the very same behavior we saw before the trial, or I should say during the trial, these press conferences, which is, you know, there would be 20 minutes, 30 minutes of interview, and then two minutes on the nightly news that sometimes were the silliest things. Uh, you know, what's it like to be an internet sex symbol now, or heart drop? <laughs> um, Seriously, I mean, you can't discuss what's really important, we thought, from the, the documentary in a, in a two or three minute news, um, nightly news thing. And we thought we should really have a forum where people could come, ask questions, uh, we could talk about the issues that are common to what we see. And frankly, we've been preaching to the choir of other attorneys for years, but the public really hasn't been that interested until this. And so this was an opportunity, we thought, let's try this and, and try and get a conversation going with people that can make a difference. Because we are voters, every one of us here. We are potential jurors, every one of us here. And we can make a difference and have an impact. And we're at a time where the pendulum might be swinging back a little bit, where people are now talking about mass incarceration as being something that's negative instead of a positive, how many people can I lock up on my watch as a prosecutor or judge, um, where uh, the, the words criminal justice reform are being uttered in presidential debates on both parties for the first time in my life, where the public is starting to wake up a bit. And, uh, you know, that's why we're so pleased to see all of you here tonight and all of the people that are coming out and joining in this conversation. Um, because we do think you can make a difference. It's just people need to believe that they can make a difference. And you know, we, we can talk about some ideas of ways that yeah. we think that people can make a difference. Yes. Um, I mentioned earlier the uh, Center for Wrongful Convictions of Youth at Northwestern University, right, right here on the Lakeshore. Um, that's a really first-rate outfit um, that's addressing a specific problem 
um, embodied in its name. And like Innocence Projects, uh, like most clinical programs at law schools, it's essentially getting by on bake sales, okay? It's cobbling together grants, uh, donations, struggling to keep young lawyers employed as clinical assistant professors, supervising attorneys on really very meager salaries. Um, and that's the story of these groups um, that make a real difference in our criminal justice system. And when I say make a real difference, you know, those of us on the stage who've been practicing law for 30, 35 years, judges, prosecutors, uh, police officers, probation agents, we're very often not the ones who achieve the exoneration five, 10, 18 years after a mistaken conviction. Who achieves these exonerations after we've all sort of moved on? Law students. Volunteer lawyers from large firms in the loop who are giving up their billable time to work for free uh, for people. Undergraduate journalism students. It's outsiders on shoestring budgets who very often are the ones cleaning up the messes that I make or the prosecutors make or the judges make. And that's something Number one, we can recognize that. Number two, we can give these groups money if we have it to give, or at least ask them how we can help with our volunteer time and effort. Um, so that's, you know, that's something concrete we can do, and it's right in your backyard. Beyond that, look, I mean, let's be honest, let's just be honest about something, okay? Um, so December of 2015, it's nine years after Jerry, nine plus years after Jerry and I tried, or going on nine years after we tried the Avery case, right? Jerry and I essentially are sitting around minding our own business. Uh, I'm trying not to screw up my cases too badly. I'm working on my second book. I'm thinking I better figure out what I'm going to get my wife for Christmas. You know. <laughs> just sort of doing what I do. And then Netflix happens, <laughs> right? And, and, if, and effectively, Jerry and I got a hand in a microphone. Um, we weren't the best lawyers to be handed that microphone. We don't necessarily have the eloquence of a Brian Stevenson or the passion of a Steve Drizzen at the Center for Wrongful Convictions of Youth. But we're the ones who got handed the microphone. And while we have it, and while there are people who are interested in hearing what we have to say, we thought we ought to use it, well, if we could, to, to talk about some broader issues about, of the, that go to the reliability of our criminal justice system in this country. And really what we want you to do in the end, if you don't have money and don't have time to volunteer and you know, even in the end, you know, if criminal justice isn't your, isn't your passion in the end, at a minimum, what, what we're hoping you'll do is take the mic from us, in effect, you know, that you will 
continue this conversation across your breakfast table, at work, in school, with friends, um, and that you'll start paying close attention, if you haven't been, to sheriff's elections, judicial retention elections in Illinois, elections for state's attorneys, a jury summons when you get it in the mail, um, and, you know, that you'll step up. Is, is it enough to do voting? I often feel like as someone who watches the voting closely and reports on it and looks at the election returns, I'm like, didn't you hear any of the stories everybody did about ex-politician and they still won overwhelmingly with 70% or whatever, and, and it's only every couple years that you can do that. It seems well, like... Well, it, it is enough because the 70% the that they won overwhelmingly by is from the 15% of voters who bother to show up and vote. And when we have elections like that, as we do for judges and DAs and, and sheriffs, you know, when they when when the president when the president isn't on the ballot, you know, what's turnout? 12, 15, 20 percent? Less than that if it's raining out. When you have elections like that, the great winner in that election you know, if it's 15% turnout, the 85% vote-getter is I don't give a damn, right? And so, yeah, elections do matter, because if you don't show up to vote in judicial retention elections, or to vote for sheriff, or whatever it is, I'll tell you who does show up. Lawyers and law enforcement people vote in judicial and law enforcement elections. And I don't think you want to defer <laughs> to the police and to lawyers to decide who all of your judges are and who's prosecuting cases in the name of the people of Illinois. I guess I just feel like here in Chicago over the last couple of years, we've kind of had like a civics lesson, I feel like, where I've seen like, you know, in a democracy, the people get the government they demand. We've had elections, and the same people get reelected. But then, when a bunch of kids hit the streets talking about police uh, use of force, problems in the police department that have existed for 40, 50 years, 60 years or more, uh, all of a sudden, the entire city administration is back on its heels, trying to correct problems that were never corrected at the ballot box. Uh, there was with some of the Laquan McDonald. Um, protests, I saw a woman was quoted in the Tribune who said, yeah, I think she was just, you know, kind of a suburban woman, as I recall, maybe 32, a young mother, and she said, uh, you know, I just felt like it was time to put my body in the way of the status quo. And I wonder if there isn't, if it's, if, that's why I feel like voting isn't really like... Well, it's, it's part, of, part of the solution. The other is, you know, there's all kinds of ways to express yourself in a democracy, and one of them, thankfully, is protests. In fact, there's a protest going on uh, by people who've organized a resistance to what happened to Brendan Dassey. We Stand for Justice on, Jan on June 11th. It's happening all over the country in various parts of the world, in the UK and in Australia, all on the same day, um, and including in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Letting people know that they're not going to accept status quo. Um, we are going to make it uncomfortable for you. 
to continue to do what you do, even if you do get elected, if you continue to do the same sorts of, of, uh, of uh, misconduct or malfeasance, then we're going to let people know. And you know, one thing that media likes to do is they like to cover protests. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to, you know, you can have, with a small group of dedicated people, um, keeping up the, the public awareness of the problem, you can have a, a big effect. And that's true with uh, social media as well. So, uh, you know, I think and that's And it's absolutely true that there's no way to know when the tipping point will come. But that's part of what Jerry and I are saying in terms of handing you the microphone. You know, it may not be tomorrow that the change really begins to happen. And God forbid, a lot more kids of color may get shot to death before we get serious about addressing some of the problems endemic to the relationship of police departments to the communities they serve. But if we stay at it, if we keep talking about it, the tipping point does come. Change is possible. Progress is possible. And you are beginning to see that here in Chicago and I think elsewhere in broad and office raucous, often raucous dialogue that we're having about policing and about criminal justice issues more generally. Dean Strang, Jerry Buting, thank you so much. deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend and thanks for listening. Hello everyone. 
If your guy or girl's got facial hair that's kind of not smelling right, not feeling right, not all that great, go to phoenixbeardoils.com today. We've got scents that every guy and girl will like. Every kid likes to play with your beard. Why not give them something to smell nice as well? Go to phoenixbeardoils.com and give somebody that great bird today. Question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Please subscribe to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. You enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, and spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.